Amen and amen. Hey, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. We're going to read together there. Always love to see people following Believer's Baptism. It's a great, great day to uh, be baptized on any Sunday or Wednesday. Or I love to see that. Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew, chapter 28. We're glad you're here on this Easter Sunday. Next, next Sunday, I'm going to start a series on the book of Hosea. And it just, it's an amazing story. What God asked of Hosea is it's kind of hard to believe, and I'll, I'll explain it more next Sunday, but really just an amazing story. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew. If you have a Bible with you, you can follow along. We'll put the words on the screen as well, and then we have some notes you can take as we go along as well. Let's read Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to visit to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So, departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. And then let's skip down to verse 16. The Bible says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, I want you to see that the truth of the resurrection, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave and conquered sin, death, and hell, changes everything. It changes everything. And if, and if you have your uh, worship guide with you, you've got a place to take some notes, I want to encourage you to write down these three principles this morning. Principle number one, the resurrection changes the finality of death. One way the resurrection changes everything is to change the finality of death. And in verses five and six, the Bible tells about the angels speaking to the women. So the women came to the tomb Jesus had died on the cross. They had seen Jesus die. They knew Jesus was dead, and they came to anoint his body. But when they got there, the Bible says the angel was there instead. And he said, uh, don't be afraid, he says in verse 5, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And they, they were to tell the disciples, and my goodness, what a change. The Death is such a... Such a final thing, apart from the resurrection. Such an end, apart from the resurrection. Let, let me note a couple of things about how the resurrection changes the finality of death. First, the power of death is lifted. The power of death is lifted. My father uh, passed away. Now, this summer, it will be 10 years ago. 10 years. It's hard for me to believe. I thought of my father... As a, as a boy, I thought my father was the strongest, you know, biggest guy, athletic guy, outgoing, kind. I thought, man, he was just immortal. He'd live forever. 
And then, as happens in this world, the Bible says life's like a vapor. And his body uh, broke and, and, and he died. And the Bible says that's not the end. For one who knows Christ as Savior, the Bible says it's not the end. The Bible says that power of death, which seems so oppressive and so heavy, is so much so that we hardly want to talk about it. We want to ignore it. We, want to, we don't want to face it and deal with it. But the Bible says the finality of death is ended. Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered sin and death and hell. And because of that, even the power of death is lifted for those who know Christ as Savior. And, and then will you notice, well, the curse of death is broken. The curse of death is broken. Sin has a problem. I think probably many think of sin like this. That, all right, it's, sure, I've sinned, but it's no big deal. It's, it doesn't really matter that much. And the Bible says, can I just tell you frankly what the Bible says about this? Not only have we sinned, but it is a really big deal because it carries consequences. And the consequences of sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So that sin separates us from God is holy. And apart from Christ, we have no hope. But the Bible says because Christ died for us on the cross, Jesus lived the perfect life, the life you couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved. He died our death on that cross. He took our sins upon himself on the cross. And Jesus provided the miracle we needed. And he rose from the grave. And because of that, the Bible says, if we will repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ, Christ will save us. Because there are consequences to sin. The curse of death is so real apart from the resurrection. Uh, recently, my little five-year-old grandson asked me to play um, wiffle ball in the backyard with him and I said you know of course your five-year-old grandson asked you to do it of course and I went back with him and he had his wiffle bat and he had that little ball it was really hard this was a really hard wiffle ball I had to get kind of close to him throw it underhand and he could just man he's smacking I thought he, he's gonna kill me he hit the ball hard sometimes and by the way can I just say any of you who might work for the Cardinals sign the kid up I'm just telling you sign him up now and I am his agent by the way I just thought I'd throw that in I'll be his agent and so Money's no object. Just, I mean, just throw all the money you can at him and at his agent. I'm just telling you, this, is a, this kid's going someplace. So I was, we were playing, and when he'd hit the ball, I'd go get the ball. And sometimes he'd swing and miss. Don't worry. His agent is working on that. It'll be okay. But sometimes he'd swing and miss, and then he'd have to get the ball. And he got tired of that. And so he said, Pappy, he said, after he missed the ball, he said, you go get it. And I said, listen, if you hit the ball... I'll go get it. But if you miss the ball, you have to go get it. And can I tell you, the Bible tells us we have all missed the mark. That's what sin is, ultimately. We've missed the mark of holiness and perfection, and there is a consequence that follows that. And here's what the Bible is telling us. Jesus took that consequence upon himself, and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Jesus died for us. Jesus died in our place. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the death we deserve and rose from the grave providing the miracle we needed. And it changes everything. It changes everything. The power of death is lifted. The curse of death is broken. It changes the finality of death. You know, 110 years ago on Friday, and for any of you really young folks, I I wasn't alive then, but 110 years ago on Friday, the Titanic sank. And it's hard for us in this generation to realize just how big that was. The Titanic was already famous, well-known, the ship that couldn't be sunk. I mean, it was just the, 
the you know, cutting edge of technology, and it sank. And in those days, people couldn't get an immediate word about what happened. And so those who had relatives were just waiting to find out what would happen, to see, uh, what, to see words and names in a newspaper, if you remember even what that was, in a newspaper. And there would be, for all of those on that ship, there was one of two words, lost or saved. And the Bible says, you are either lost or you are saved. You are either facing the consequences of sin, that is, the consequences that we all deserve. We've all sinned against God. The wages of sin is death. Sin separates us from God who is holy. Or we are saved. And the Bible tells us that happens not by being good enough because we can't be good enough to erase the sin of our past, even if we could be perfect from this point forward. It's more than religion. Religious acts are our response to faith, not the replacement for faith that it becomes for so many. And so the Lord reminds us that we need Christ as Savior. And if you will repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you, if you will receive him as Savior, he will save you. And this day, I want to ask you to give your life to Christ and trust him as Savior and find salvation full and free in the Lord. In a few minutes when we pray together, I'm going to ask you to give your life to Christ. There's some of you here who are, God brought you to this moment. God reminds you, the Holy Spirit convicts you that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Today, I want to ask you to give your life to Christ. There's a second principle I want you to note, a second way the resurrection changes things. Not only does it change the finality of death, but secondly, the resurrection changes the attitude of life. Would you write that down on your notes? The resurrection changes the attitude of life. And verses 8 and following, we see the women who have come to the tomb thinking Jesus is dead. They find out Jesus is alive, and it changes the attitude of their very life. It changes first their urgency. In verse 8, the Bible says they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. The Bible says they ran to tell his disciples the news. And there's a new passion for them. They were running. Suddenly they were urgent. They cared about this deeply. I don't know what it is that's really, that you're passionate about. What it is you think, man, if I could just have that, I mean, that's what I most need. But I kind of tell you, whatever it is that you're searching for, you say, this is what I'm passionate about, except outside of the Lord himself, whatever it is, it'll never be enough. If it's money, if it's, if it's your job, if it's power, if it's pleasure, it'll never be enough. And maybe you've seen that already a little bit in your life. You, you get a little of those things and you say, but I just need a little bit more. It can I tell you, it'll always be a little bit more. It'll always be a little bit more. But the, the Lord is reminding us that he is the one who satisfies. He's the only one who can feel that passion. And suddenly these women are passionate. They are running. They are eager. They've gone from deep grief to great excitement. Notice as well that it changes our emotions. Notice that they were in fear. And the Bible says we don't have to live in fear. Verse 8 says uh, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They don't hardly know what to think. And Jesus speaks to them. Can I just remind you, this is the, this is the fear generation. We've been living in fear. We have that great uh, fear in our lives, in our society. Many young people have grown up hearing so much about fear. Can I remind you, this is a broken world. We get that. It's a broken world. 
And because it's a broken world, because sin entered the world, not only are we broken and we are broken, but the world itself is broken. And so there's disease and sickness and death. The Bible tells us all about these things. And the Bible's not shy to tell us all about the details of the brokenness of our world. But we don't have to live in fear. In fact, notice what Jesus says in verse 10. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And over and over the Bible tells us that. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear of death because Christ rose from the dead. We don't have to live in fear of the future or what might happen. We know who holds that future. And so God changes even the emotion of fear. He changes the emotion of joy. In verse 8, the Bible says they ran from the tomb with fear and great joy. I want to remind you that joy is something God talks about often in his word because he wants you to have joy. Not just um, a momentary thing. By the way, joy is not just like all my circumstances are good. I don't have any problems. Suddenly the world isn't broken anymore after all. There's no brokenness in our world. No, man, this is a broken world. And until the Lord's return, this is going to remain a broken world. But it is that we can have the presence of the Lord, the risen Lord, in this broken world. In this world of the dying, we can have the presence of the living Savior in us. And there can be joy no matter what circumstances you're going through. And some of you are going through some difficulties and some struggles and some problems and some pain. But we can have joy because the Lord gives us that joy. His resurrection overcomes the problems and struggles that we face. And notice it changes not only our urgency and emotions, but our actions. Verse 9 says, Just then Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And this, they fell before him, and they just, they just worshipped. Worship is a, it's a natural response to God's supernatural work. Worship is the, is the natural response to our understanding of the supernatural work of the Lord. When, when we recognize the supernatural work of the Lord to conquer death, to rise from the grave, worship is the natural response. It's our natural response to the understanding of the Lord. It's why we worship. And I want to say parenthetically as well a word about the church because we live in a generation that has said the church is no big deal. And not just the generation, but the Christians in the Western world, in large measure, Christians in the Western world have said, really, listen, church is no big deal. And it doesn't really matter. And worshiping corporately, it's not a big thing. And it's not that. And can I just, can I say, you don't get that concept from the Bible. That's not coming from the Lord. Our culture says that. Our, much of the Christian culture says that. You worship God wherever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, except the Lord himself made the church. And he did it for a reason. And we gather because we encourage each other and we need each other. And we worship corporately together. And God puts us together. And you say, wait a second, the problem is that church is filled with people. And yes, that's the problem. It's filled with people like you. I got, oh, I got personal there. Me too. It's filled with people like you. That's the problem with the church, right? There's no church that has, every church, this is a church, has people. And the problem is they're filled with people like us. God made the church for a reason. And he puts us together and we become together the body of Christ to, to do the work that God has for us. And God blesses that and uses that and honors that in life. There's a power. The resurrection changes the attitude of our life and even the actions we perform. I, I just finished a book this week on a, a guy named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce at one time was one of the, he was just one of the most famous men 
in um, history, and he's been largely forgotten in this generation, largely forgotten. He lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. But there is no man save the Lord Jesus himself, no man in history who has done more to eradicate slavery than did William Wilberforce. When he was 21 years old, he got elected to parliament. 21 years old. He became a politician. 21 years old. What did he know at 21? What does any politician know at any stage along the way, we might ask? But 21 years old, he becomes one of the prominent seats of parliament. But he got connected with some folks who began to show him more about who God was. And at 26 years of age, William Wilberforce came to know Christ as his Savior. He came to realize Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sin. And Jesus rose from the grave, and that changes everything. And when he gave his life to Christ, I mean, it changed his attitudes, it changed his actions, it changed him as a politician. I think more politicians ought to trust Christ as Savior. That's my bias in that regard. It'd be good for every person to come to know Christ. But it changed how he thought, and suddenly he began to think people differently. And in a generation that thought of people, some people are just worthless, or that's just the way, you know, that's the way they should be. And he saw the value of every human life because God did. And he began to work tirelessly to change the attitude in England. And over time, early in that struggle, early in that struggle, he came, a vote came to Parliament, and it almost, he was almost successful. But the, and the slave forces were powerful and wealthy and rich, and, and so for years then, that languished, abolishing the slave trade languished for years. And Wilberforce and others prayed and worked and every effort they could take. And eventually a day came when England abolished the slave trade. And then through tireless work and effort, a day came when England abolished slavery and all of its uh, commonwealth and and even through the life of that man, people like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln were deeply indebted to William Wilberforce and the work he had done before them. Along the way, some of the guys who had helped point Wilberforce to faith in Christ, one of the guys was a guy named um, Newton, John Newton, who wrote a little ditty, maybe you've heard of this, called Amazing Grace. Newton had been a slave trader himself, slave captain of a, sh- a slave ship. And he came to faith in Christ and radical trans- transformation, became a pastor of a church, influential in helping Wilberforce see that it was more than religion that God wanted, but that he, could, he needed Christ as Savior, and Wilberforce came to know the Lord. And when that happened, it changed everything. Let me, let me just tell you, it's a radical thing to follow the Lord. When you come to realize it is true, Jesus did die for us. Jesus did rise from the grave for us. It changes not only the finality of death, but the attitude of our lives to the urgency and passions of our life to the emotions and actions we take there's a third principle i want you to know would you know the resurrection changes the mission of life would you write that down it changes the mission of life and the bible reminds us that god has made us for something more than ourselves you need to know this god made you for something more than yourself In verse 16 and 17, the Bible talks about the disciples gathering together, and some of them even at that point still doubted, and they worshiped at the same time. And verse 18 and following, 
are sometimes called the Great Commission. It's the mission that God gave to us. The words of Jesus before he ascends back to the Father, he gives us this mission. And I want you to note some things about the mission of life God has for us. First, he tells us about our faith. In verse 18, he says, Go therefore and make disciples. Or rather, verse 18, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So if we think about our faith, we might summarize it with three words. Jesus is Lord. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is Lord. We see our mission here in verse 19. Verse 19 tells us the mission. If you want to know what the mission of the church is, if you want to know what the mission of the Christian is, believer, if you want to know what your mission is, here it is in verse 19. It's make disciples. That's the imperative. If you remember back to English class, the imperative was the command words. And the imperative of verse 19 is make disciples. That's the task. That's our mission. We're to help people follow Jesus, obey Jesus, live for Jesus, make disciples. We see the method. How do we do this? We see the method in verses 19 and 20. There are three participles. Now I'm really far back into English class. Remember, participles are ing verbs. And there, uh, there are three participles mentioned here. Going and baptizing and teaching. Verse 19 says, go therefore, and it's presented as an imperative, but it's really a participle with the force of an imperative. It's kind of, we could almost say, as you go, that is, we don't just stay, we don't just trust Christ as Savior and say, man, good luck to the rest of those folks. Be nice if some other people follow. No, we go. We, we are to be actively involved as we go. We baptize. The Bible says baptizing them. Baptism is a picture of what's happened in your heart. It's your way of testifying that you followed Christ as Savior. If you've not been yet been baptized since you trusted Christ as Savior, we encourage you to make that your testimony, your public testimony of faith. What a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for you. We, we're praying God will allow us to baptize 100 people this year as people profess faith in the Lord Jesus. The Bible says, going and baptizing and then teaching. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So we want to present here the full counsel of God. We want to tell you the things that are popular. Some things about Jesus are just super popular. And some things in this generation, not so much. But we want to tell you everything the Bible teaches us, all that God has to say, because we want you to know the truth. We want you to know what God has to say. We don't want you just to base your life on what's popular or your feelings. Feelings can be affected by whether you got enough sleep or what you ate or what your background is or what Aunt Harriet said to you or whatever it might be. Feelings can be changed by lots of things, but what is the truth? What does God say? And so God just tells you the truth. I mean, he just tells you the truth. The things the culture likes, the things the culture doesn't like. God does that because the truth is what sets you free. And God loves you so much and cares so much about you. He's willing to tell you the truth. And he says, that's our job. We teach the truth. We tell people not our opinions or thoughts or feelings, but what does God have to say? Not just what's popular or what's accepted, but what does God say? It shows us here our audience. Verse 19 says, we're to go and make disciples of all nations. Every background, every people group, every nation, every tribe and tongue, people who look like you and people who don't, people who know your language and people who don't, people with every sort of background and every sort of place needs to know about the message of the gospel. That's our audience. And then it tells us about our ability. Verse 20 says, Jesus said, and remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. By the way, how in the world could we do this? Make disciples of all nations? There's just this little group of ragtag disciples in the early days. And what about us even now with all that we have? How, 
how could we reach all the nations? Remember, I'm with you always, Jesus said, to the end of the age. God the Holy Spirit comes to live in us in salvation, and we have the power of God in us to do everything God wants to do. And so God wants to use us to accomplish his mission. That's what the resurrection changes. It changes the mission we have. So it leads us to a few questions. Why should we, why should we be outward focused? Some of you know we have these five value statements we say as a church, and one of them is to be outward focused. Well, why not just focus on the people who are already here? And just there's plenty of needs, plenty of people to care for right here. Why would we be outward focused? Why share the gospel with our region? I mean, there's a lot of good things we could do. Why would we share the gospel? It's not even always popular with everyone. Why would we share the gospel with our region? Why do we go on international mission trips of all things and support international missionaries around the world and people from our own church who have left left their comforts of home in suburbia to go off to service in hard places? Why do we go every year to places like Cuba on mission trips and Uganda where we've gone for years and years and years? And by the way, it looks as though the Lord is opening an opportunity for us. It looks like the Lord is in this to allow us this summer to go to Poland uh, on a mission trip with Ukraine refugees this very summer. It looks like God's opening that door. Well, why in the world would we do that? Plenty of needs here. Why would we care about other people? Why, for that matter, would we plant churches why would we care about baptizing people? Why would we care whether 100 people were baptized this year or whether people came in a, to a worship service or whether boys and girls hear the message of the gospel or Vacation Bible School reaches people for the Lord? Why do we care? Because our risen Savior gave us a mission and Jesus is alive. He conquered death itself and he changes the way we think about life and he gives us a mission. And can I tell you, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And God wants to use that to change you and me. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? And as we bow, I want to ask God to do some work in our lives. Some of you are here hearing this with your head bowed. Some of you are hearing this message who need to trust Christ as Savior, saved or lost. And if you were honest with yourself and with others, you would say, I have never trusted Christ as Savior. I am lost. And without Christ, we are lost. But the Holy Spirit's convicting you that you're a sinner. You feel that conviction. He does that to remind you of your need for the Lord. And where you are this day, you could give your life to Christ. Will you just acknowledge to God, I'm a, I've sinned against you. Just tell him what he already knows. What the Holy Spirit is reminding you, the truth of yourself. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough to get the perfection. I can't do enough religious deeds to be holy and perfect. But I believe you died on the cross for me. Would you tell him that? You lived the perfect life I couldn't live, and you died the death I deserved, and you rose from the grave. You provided the miracle I needed, and I believe that. And so this day, I want to receive you as Savior. God, I want to repent of my sin, and I want to give my life to you, and I want to trust you as Savior. And if you mean that, Christ will save you. Not just words to say, but if you mean it from your heart, Christ will save you. And some of you are brought here by God because God wanted you to hear the truth of the gospel Today, I want to ask you to be saved, to be saved. Christian, the resurrection changes everything in our lives. And God wants to remind us that it changes the way we face life itself. The fears and doubts and worries. And I don't doubt some of you brought with you this day some deep brokenness and pain and hurt and worry and fear. But man, you can trust the Lord in the middle of those problems. God's reminding you of the mission he has for you. 
that he wants to use you to make a difference in this world, that your life is not just about you. Your life is not just about you. But God made you for something more, and he wants to use you to make a a difference and to make disciples in this world for his glory. Would you say yes to him? And Father, I want to thank you for the truth of your word. You tell us the truth because you care about us. And I want to thank you for the truth of your word. I want to thank you for sending your son into this broken, fallen world filled with broken, fallen people like us to live the life we couldn't live and therefore to be worthy to die the death we deserve, to die on that cross for us and to rise from the grave for us. And I thank you that changes everything, how we think, how we act, how we live, even death itself, eternal life that you promise us from your word. And so I pray you'll use that in our lives. I'm praying for people today to be saved, to give their life to you and follow you, for Christians to be strengthened, to do more than just live for self or just to fill time in this world, but to live on mission for you. And we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.